0: Lucifer means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Sacred Order of Green Zombies Part 2 King of Winter, Lord of Death
1: Hey there friends and fellow Mythical Astronomers, well it's been 3 days and here we are, back from the dead for more zombie talk. We're pretty much going to pick up right where we left off, discussing the ways in which the Horned God, Green Man, and Corn King mythology is woven into a song of ice and fire in regards to the last hero Azor Ahai and ending the long night. I am going to confess to you right now that even though I said, oh there will be one more short episode to follow up on this, that turns out not to be the case. Yes, I unfortunately have to break the news to you that this episode isn't all that short and it isn't the last green zombie episode either. This one will focus on the King of Winter and the third one, soon to follow, will be about the Night's Watch. As we saw last time, the essence of the resurrected fertility god is the symbolic link between death and resurrection and the cycle of the seasons. These resurrected nature deities are simply a personification of the way the seasons turn with their death coming in the fall and their rebirth in the spring. In fact, their rebirth usually brings the return of spring. The mission of the last hero and or Azor Ahai was exactly this, to turn the seasons after they had become stuck in the winter phase. And therefore, Azor High and the last hero are very much a symbolic match to these resurrected fertility god mythologies. The Morningstar-related mythology of Lightbringer or of a light which brings the dawn overlaps very well with the nature god idea of bringing the spring, particularly when the long night is defined as a prolonged winter and a prolonged darkness. We need to bring the light and the spring, in other words, so the idea of a resurrected nature god wielding Lightbringer actually makes a great deal of sense. Accordingly, we have found several characters who seem to conflate Azor high and Last Hero symbolism with Horned God, Green Man, and Greenseer ideas, such as Stannis, Renly, Blood Bloodraven, and Jon Snow. All of these characters, however, also show us very strong zombie and resurrection symbolism. Beric is literally resurrected and called the Lord of Corpses. Jon is soon to be resurrected. Renly was pretend resurrected at the Battle of the Blackwater. Stannis looks half a corpse because of his making shadow babies with Melisandre. And Bloodraven is called a grizzly talking corpse and the corpse lord. My conclusion from this was that Martin has apparently given us a resurrected corpse version of the fertility god instead of a freshly reborn one. This is apparently our hero. Jon Snow, the Corn King, will soon be a resurrected skin changer, and he will most likely be a kind of new last hero for the new long night. Similarly, I believe that the original last hero was likely to have been a resurrected skin changer or green seer as well. The idea of a skin changer zombie last hero also happens to make a lot of sense from a logistical and rational perspective, as they are the ideal candidates to journey into the cold dead lands and confront the others, having no need for food, shelter, warmth, or sleep. Harkening back to the saying, what is dead may never die, and considering cold hands probable age, it seems that skin-changer zombies may even be functionally immortal, unlike the degraded zombies that we see elsewhere. I don't think it's coincidence, in other words, that John is about to become a resurrected skin-changer. In fact, I am asserting that the reason George killed him and brought him back to life is precisely so that he can become a skin-changer zombie, the ideal candidate to face the others. We have seen that George is incorporating clear Horned God and Green Man ideas in Southern Westeros with Garth the Green, the Sacred Order of the Green Men, and the Baratheon Storm Kings, but what we are interested in is evidence, either literal or symbolic, which ties these ideas to the North, the Night's Watch, and of course to the Last Hero. We've talked a lot about the Last Hero already, but we've only touched on the Night's Watch around the edges, and we haven't examined Northern culture at all. Today we'll be doing just that, having a look at some of the old legends of the North, and next time we'll talk about the Night's Watch. As we do so, we'll be looking for anything having to do with green men or zombies. Now. We have already found a smattering of horned lord ideas north of the Wall in wildling culture, and have also proposed a tenuous link between cold hands and the Green Men. Or at least, I stole the idea from Bran and attempted to provide supporting evidence. But we haven't dealt with the real heavyweights of the North, the Starks, so let's turn our focus northward, towards the bright blue star that is the Eye of the Ice Dragon, or the Eye of the Rider, Tales Vary. As always, we are fueled by the support of our Patreon supporters and so we extend our deepest thanks to you. Researching all of this takes quite a bit of time, as you might guess, and like most of you, I was not born the heir to a Lannister fortune, so it really is the support of you generous patrons which enables me to spend the time that it takes to make mythical astronomy happen. If you'd like to become one of our Patreon supporters and earn yourself a cool mythical astronomy nickname, then head on over to LuciferMeansLightbringer.com. And here's something you can do to help the podcast which doesn't cost a dime. Leave a little review on iTunes. It really helps increase the visibility of the podcast on all places where podcasts are listed, so if you have a couple minutes for that, I would be most grateful. Our music is provided by Animals as Leaders, with the track you just heard titled Arithmophobia coming from their brand new album, The Madness of Many, which I highly recommend. Vocal performances today come from the Amethyst Koala and Mr. Martin Lewis of the Echoes of Ice and Fire blog. Martin has become a tremendous addition to our podcast, and you can check out his performances of A Song of Ice and Fire material on the Echoes of Ice and Fire Facebook page. Last, but definitely not least, I know I speak for everyone when I say thank you, Mr. George R. R. Martin, for writing these wonderful novels. Garth's Wheelbarrow. This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter and priestess of the Church of Starry Wisdom, Fire Red, Master of Pie Island. We'll begin by examining two of the major mythical figures of the North, which may relate to Garth and the Horned Folk, the King of Winter and the Barrow King. I know the King of Winter is the one you really want to hear about, so naturally we'll start with the Barrow King, because that's how these things are supposed to work. The Barrow Kings are cool too, however, so we gotta give them their due. It begins with a possible direct connection between Garth the Green and the northern legend of the First King and the subsequent Barrow Kings of House Dustin. In The World of Ice and Fire, it says that Garth the Green was High King of the First Men, and that he might have been the first lord or chieftain to lead the First Men across the Arm of Dorn and into Westeros. His line of gardener kings similarly claimed to have been the high kings of the first men thereafter. But up in the Barrowlands in the north, we hear of the Barrow kings who rivaled the Starks in ancient day, and they styled themselves kings of the first men and claimed supremacy over all first men everywhere. This claim was based on their supposed ancestry from someone called the first king, who was said to have once ruled supreme over all the first men. Now, Any number of First Men kings could have claimed to be the king of all First Men everywhere or something like that, or even to have descended from the first great king of some portion of Westeros. But there is a very strong indication that the First King and Garth legends are actually talking about the same fellow. It comes in a dance with dragons when Theon sees the Great Barrow at Barrowton.
2: Some claimed that it was the grave of the First King who had led the First Men to Westeros. Others argued that it must be some king of the giants who was buried there to account for its size.
1: So there you go. It's all ancient legend, but when they speak of the first king who led the first men across Westeros, they are talking about Garth the Green. Or said another way, these could be two versions of the same myth, grown apart through time and circumstance. Or perhaps it's a literal connection. Maybe old Greenhands ended his life up north and he's actually buried in this barrow. Either way, the emphasis in the southern legend is on Garth's life and fertility, while the emphasis in the northern myth is on Garth's death and burial. This generally lines up with the cycle of the seasons and the cycle of the nature god. Winter represents the death state, the stage after the fertility god's death where he awaits resurrection, so it makes sense on a basic level to see a myth about a dead nature god in a place that is defined by winter. And there's lots more of this to come. As an aside, I must point out that the part of the Barrowton legend about the Great Barrow being the final resting place for a king of the giants may have truth in it as well, if it does indeed refer to Garth, because there are a couple of clues about Garth being a larger-than-average fellow. When Robert dons his antlered helm so that he can look like a horned god, Ned says that he became a veritable giant, and Renly's antlered helm is said to add a foot and a half to his height. Garth himself was said to sire John the Oak on a giantess, so maybe he was a larger-than-average dude to begin with, the kind a giantess would go for, and the kind who could survive the encounter, for that matter. There are scattered stories about taller-than-average people around the world in the world of Ice and Fire, so perhaps Garth and the Green Men are some sort of very tall human or humanoid. The nice thing about theorizing about the Green Men is that we should find out the truth, because Howland Reed has been to the Isle of Faces and potentially has told Jojen and Mir what he saw there. And Bran and Bloodraven can surely see what's there through the weirwood net. Perhaps we will learn the truth of these green men. If they're tall, stagman humanoids, you heard it here first. But getting back to the point, we have this possible link between Garth and the first king of the Barrow Kings, via the shared claim of being the king of the first men and the first one to lead them across the arm of Dorne. We might be able to corroborate this by taking a look at the theme of the Barrow King myth and seeing if it lines up with the greater Corn King mythology that defines Garth the Green. As I began to say a moment ago, winter is the death stage in the cycle of nature and resurrected nature gods. The idea of a Barrow King is precisely that of a king of death, a king over death, or a king of the dead. Barrowton, the seat of the Barrow Kings, is built at the foot of a huge grave. That's a symbol which isn't exactly what you would call cryptic. Well, I mean, it's about crypts, yes, but it's not cryptic in that it's not hard to understand. Anyway, building your fortress over someone else's grave is unquestionably bad luck and certainly in poor taste, but building a fortress over the grave of your greatest ancestor is something altogether different. It signifies the use of death and the grave as a kind of foundation, as a source of power and authority. If that ancestor is Garth, then the Barrow Kings are drawing authority and power from Garth's death. And as far as looking for signs of undead and resurrected green men, green seers, and skin changers goes, this is what you might call getting warmer. The descendants of the Barrow King and the First King are the fine folk of House Dustin, and their sigil includes a rusted iron crown to pay tribute to the First King. Compare that to Garth's line of Gardener Kings who wore a crown of vines and flowers in peacetime, and a crown of bronze and later iron, thorns, when at war. It's almost like Garth put on his metal crown, and then went to war in the north, then died, and his crown rusted to reflect his death. But he's still the king, the Barrow King, the Lord of Death, and so he still has a crown, but a rusted one to reflect his death state. The Barrow King, in other words, sounds a lot like undead, zombified Garth. Getting warmer. There are more zombie clues to be found lurking around the First King of the Barrow Kings. The World of Ice and Fire tells us that supposedly there is a curse laid on the Great Barrow which...
2: ...would allow no living man to rival the First King. This curse made the pretenders to the title grow corpse-like in appearance as it sucked away their vitality and life.
1: The idea of a curse this powerful seems a bit fanciful for Martin's type of fantasy fiction, in my opinion, but the idea that the first king possessed magic that could turn people into walking corpses is an idea that has our attention. Now George R. R. Martin is certainly simulating the degradation and evolution of myth and folklore in A Song of Ice and Fire, so when we look at myths like these, we are really looking at the base elements of the myth. Here we have a dead Garth reaching out from the grave to turn people corpse-like, in a thematic inversion of Garth's classic role as a bringer of fertility. Instead of a curse, might this story be another clue about green seers raising the dead? Green men or descendants of Garth who turned their magics in a darker direction? In the world of ice and fire, the maesters suggest that the barrow kings who descend from the first king are themselves generally associated with corpses, saying that that is why it's thought that the corpse queen of the knight's king may have been a daughter of the barrow king. That's another suggestion of the Barrow Kings being a magical bloodline, as the Corpse Queen was certainly a magical being who may have been involved in making Others with the Knight's King. There are ample clues about Greenseer magic being involved in the creation of the Others, so perhaps the Corpse Queen was using Greenseer magic inherited from her green ancestors in her icy endeavors. Similarly, many have suggested that the raising of the Cold Whites is a mutated form of Greenseer magic, something like skin changing the dead. An idea which I think has a lot of merit. So the story here at Barrowton overall is about Garth the stag-man fertility god coming up north and dying but establishing a line of kings who are the opposite of Garth. They celebrate death, building their fortress at the Great Barrow, and they might have the capability of turning people corpse-like somehow or making zombies. Whether or not Garth himself is in that Barrow, his myth seems to have traveled In all probability carried here by people who considered garth their ancestor and who eventually came to believe that he was buried in the great barrow if garth was a green man and again we don't know what green men really are then we have a possible account of green men coming north and becoming associated with death to sum up the barrow king is a lord of death figure who represents the death winter cycle of the corn king process the corn king is killed in the fall and resurrected in the spring but for a time He's the lord of the dead, like the barrow kings, and like the corpse queen and the knight's king, for that matter. In the holly king and oak king, brother versus brother version of this type of myth, consider that each god takes a turn being dead for six months, or you might say in hibernation for six months. If you stop and think about it, the death-winter stage of the corn king cycle is very, very important for a song of ice and fire, because it is during the merciless winter of the long night that the hard work must be done to turn the seasons. That's precisely when we need our heroes. That's why it makes so much sense for the last hero to be a zombie. Winter is the death stage of the corn king cycle. A corn king figure in winter kind of has to be dead in some sense. You'll recall that Herne the Hunter, a horned god associated with guarding the woods in wintertime, is a ghost. The king is dead. This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter and priest of the Church of Starry Wisdom, Sir Cosmo of House Astor, whose house words are, We walk at dawn. As I'm sure you realize by now, the King of Winter probably plays into this idea of a dead corn king representing the winter stage of the cycle of the seasons as well. The kings of winter are heavily associated with the crypts, where they all have their lifelike statues whose eyes always seem to follow people who pass by. Together with the godswood, the crypts are essentially the heart of Winterfell. And in fact, Ned has many parallels to Hades, the Greek god of the underworld. And here again, I will recommend that you seek out the Mythological Weave of Ice and Fire blog by my friend Sweet Sunray, where she has Ned as Hades on lockdown. And of course, the link to that can be found on lucifermeanslightbringer.com. Hades has Cerberus the hellhound, and the Starks have their direwolves, who are likened to hellhounds in symbolic fashion. Thus we can see that the Starks are very much lords of the dead, the keepers of the gates to the underworld, just as the name King of Winter implies. As we heard last time, the Starks may descend from Garth the Green via Brandon of the Bloody Blade, who may have been an ancestor of Bran the Builder. That kind of goes together with the idea that the Barrow Kings might descend from Garth, because if Garth and his descendants came north, it's very likely that traces of them could be seen in more than one house. I didn't mention this last time, but there is other evidence of Stark activity in the south in the time before the Long Night. Brandon the Builder is associated with building or designing two of the greatest castles in southern Westeros the final version of the High Tower of Old Town, as well as the Great Keep of Storm's End. In other words, whomever or whatever was behind the northern myth of Bran the Builder traveled around quite a bit. Perhaps the myth itself originated in the south and traveled north with the descendants of Bran the Builder and Brandon of the Bloody Blade. Or perhaps Bran or the group of people collectively remembered as Bran the Builder made their first constructions in the south before eventually migrating northward. Either way, it can be taken as strong evidence of stark activity in the south in ancient day and as possible corroboration for a southern origin for House Stark as well. Those two locations where Bran was said to have helped a great lord build his mighty keep, Old Town and Storm's End, are of course noteworthy in their own right for their connection to Horned Folk. Old Town is in the Reach and not far from Highgarden, home of Garth the Green, the Horned Green God, and the man whom Bran would have been helping to build the High Tower was Uthor of the High Tower, who was said to have taken a daughter of Garth the Green to wife. Maris the Most Fair. At Storm's End, Bran would have been dishing out architectural advice to Durn God's Grief, and Durn is of course a horned lord in his own right as we have seen, founding a line of stagmen who wear antlered crowns and antlered helms. In other words, Bran the Builder's ties to these two southern places and their horned god legends lines up with the idea of Brandon of the Bloody Blade being a son of Garth and an ancestor to House Stark. If that is the case, The story of their house is very similar to the Barrow King's. Descendants of the Green Man First King come to the north to become the lords of death and winter. This would make sense in terms of Westerosi cultural history, because both the Starks and the Barrow Kings might descend from Garth and therefore share a common origin for their myth, a Green Man story adapted to the more northern themes of winter and death. The idea of a green horned lord coming north to die and becoming the king of winter is actually depicted at the very beginning of A Game of Thrones, when King Robert, the green-horned god, comes north to Winterfell and heads straight for the Crips. When Robert arrives, Ned in fact acknowledges Robert's dominion over Winterfell with his very first words spoken to Robert, greeting him with, Your grace, Winterfell is yours. They head down into the Crips, and Robert wages a one-man contest to see how many times he can foreshadow his own death in the space of five minutes in one scene including the not-very-subtle example of Robert saying that sometimes he wishes he had lost at the Trident, or when he speaks of drinking himself into an early grave. It's pretty much asking for it in retrospect. In particular, there's something going on with Robert's laughter that I want to key in on.
2: Robert laughed, the sound rattling among the tombs and bouncing from the vaulted ceiling. His smile was a flash of white teeth in the thicket of a huge black beard.
1: The word rattle evokes a death rattle, especially when it echoes among the tombs. Martin pulls a similar trick in the scene where Bran and Jojen and Mira realize that Cold Hands is a corpse, if you remember. Cold Hands' speech is described with the line, His voice rattled in his throat, as thin and gaunt as he was. Cold Hands' voice is a death rattle, and here in the Winterfell Crypts, Robert's laughter is one too. A bit later in the crypt scene with Ned, Robert tells the infamous, The king eats and the hand takes the shit joke, and laughs.
2: He threw back his head and roared with laughter. The echoes rang through the darkness, and all around them, the dead of Winterfell seemed to watch with cold and disapproving eyes. Finally, the laughter dwindled and stopped. Ned was still on one knee, his eye upraised. Damn it, Ned, the king complained. You might at least humor me with a smile. They say it grows so cold up here in the winter that a man's laughter freezes in his throat and chokes him to death, Ned said evenly. Perhaps that's why the Starks have so little humor.
1: And now we know how cold hands died. One too many jokes on the wall. has said better be careful, he could kill everyone. Kidding aside though, Ned is pretty clearly turning Robert's rattling laughter around on him and warning him that it can cause death and freezing and his message is punctuated by the cold, disapproving glare of the stone kings of winter all around him. There's even a match for this at Renly's death, which Brienne describes in the immediate aftermath by saying, he was laughing one moment, and suddenly the blood was everywhere. Robert goes on to talk of how Ned and he should have been brothers by blood if he had married Leanna, and that's actually what is going on here, with Ned and Robert playing the Summer King, Winter King as brothers who kill each other version of the Corn King Cycle. In truth, Robert and Ned love each other, of course, but their actions cause each other's death, as foreshadowed in the opening chapter of A Game of Thrones, when they find the clear omen of the direwolf mother killed by a stag antler. Robert enters the crypts as the Summer King, talking of the bounty and fertility of the South, and he names Ned the Winter King with his words of greeting, telling Ned how good it is to see that frozen face of yours. The entire chapter consists of a kind of tug of war, with Ned saying, you really should come see the wall and the Night's Watch and try not to laugh so much because it can kill you. And Robert is constantly trying to get Ned to laugh, and talking of teaching him to laugh again by showing him the rich fruitfulness of the South, and of course he's trying to take Ned south to help him rule. So in terms of depicting the cycle of the seasons as a fraternal affair, Ned and Robert are separate people, one symbolizing the winter stage of the cycle, and one the summer. But in many versions of the corn king mythology, all of the stages of the cycle are represented by one deity, and in that context, the winter king is actually a foreshadowing of the fate of the summer king, and vice versa. Ned's king of winter role is simply the death and winter phase of the corn king cycle, as with the barrow king, while Robert's is the summer and vitality stage. That's why it makes so much sense to depict Robert as the honorary Lord of Winterfell while foreshadowing his death in the Winterfell crypts, because a dead horn god is analogous to the Winter King, or in this case, the King of Winter. There's even a line in the crypts where Robert is telling Ned that he wants him at his side again because he is surrounded by traitors and false flatterers, and then it says, Robert looked off into the darkness, for a moment as melancholy as a Stark. In other words, when Robert gazes into the darkness of the tomb and stares at his own death, he looks like a Stark. In fact, Martin may very well have taken the title King of Winter from a specific bit of Green Man folklore known as The Wicker Man. A few of you might be familiar with a British cult horror movie from the 70s of that title, The Wicker Man, the plot of which Radiohead actually just recreated in their music video for Burn the Witch, which I highly recommend, because I love Radiohead. But the wicker man is originally a celtic druid practice. According to Julius Caesar in his commentary on the Gallic war, the druids built man-shaped wicker cages in which they burnt people alive. Historians doubt the human sacrifice aspect of this, however, as there is really no other evidence to support it other than Caesar's account. What has survived of the wicker man tradition is the burning of wicker man effigies at various neo-pagan festivals. This is actually where the idea of burning a large wooden man at the Burning Man Festival in Nevada came from. In particular, there is a practice of making a small green man with extra shoots and leaves from your garden in the fall. You are supposed to keep it through the winter as the greenery dries out and dies. And during this time, the wicker man is called the King of Winter. It's a green man, but it's dead. And it's the King of Winter. It's more like a straw man or a wicker man or a wooden man. So, in other words, when I tell you that the King of Winter was a formerly green man of some kind, it's actually not the slightest bit tinfoily or far-fetched. Indeed, it's clearly suggested by the title King of Winter. So, you save your King of Winter all winter long, and then the spring comes, and with it, Beltane. So what do you do with your dead green man, now that his winter reign is over? Well, you burn him, of course. That's pretty interesting. Burning a green man when spring arrives? Spring is usually when the corn king is resurrected, but we can quickly see that in A Song of Ice and Fire, burning and resurrecting a corn king can be the same thing, particularly if John the dead corn king is resurrected by fire magic to help end the long night and bring the spring, or if the same was true of the last hero. A burning, resurrected green man is also exactly what we see in our fiery undead stagmen, Resurrected Renly with the ghostly green armor and the antlers of golden flame, and half a corpse Stannis of the fiery HART heart and the fiery HEART heart. Now, because King Rob Stark made John his heir in a will which may or may not surface in the Winds of Winter, resurrected John may well become the actual King of the North, and King of the North is really just the modern version of King of Winter. John is already Lord Snow. Which is really just another way of saying king of winter, if you think about it. So, if John is resurrected by fire and becomes the king of winter and helps to bring the springtime, he'll be a stunningly accurate incarnation of the king of winter. John isn't a green man or made from garden shoots, but he is a corn king and a skin changer, and skin changer magic is really just a part of green seer magic. Thus, we can see that John, the fiery undead skin changer, would make an excellent king of winter, and at the same time, he would actually be becoming his own version of Azor High Reborn as a fiery undead King of Winter. As they say, titles, titles. What's this now? Azor High Reborn as the King of Winter? Well, look, we don't know how many different people contribute to the combined myth of the magic sword hero who defeats the Long Night, just as we don't know how many brands are a part of the Brand the Builder legend, or how many Durans there were and which did what. But yes. The King of Winter is like a frozen, dead Azora high, but one who also burns in the spring. It's some kind of ice and fire duality, surprise, surprise. Consider the first King of the North that we see in the books, Rob Stark. He has the Tully looks, kissed by fire red hair, and striking blue eyes that could remind us of the others. And of course there is a long history of associating the eyes of Starks with ice, including a Brandon Ice-Eyes Stark, an ancient King of the North and all of the other statues of the Kings of Winter, who are described as having eyes of ice. Stannis shows us similar imagery when Danny sees him in her House of the Undying Vision as a blue-eyed king with a red sword. If we had more time, we could also mention John Connington, the Red Griffin Reborn, who also has, quote, eyes of ice, and kiss-by-fire red hair, and who wears a red wolf pelt to combine the symbolism of fire and the Starks, He's also known for keeping the Night Watch while they are on the riverboat on the Rhoyne. But we don't have time for that, so let's talk about Rob, the actual King of the North slash King of Winter that we see in the books. Dark and strong to fight the cold. This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter and priestess of the Church of Starry Wisdom, Cynixia. Queen of the Summer Snows and Burner of Winter's Wick. Rob Stark is indeed meant to show us the archetype of the King of Winter, have no doubt. All the kings of Winter in the Winterfell crypts are in the same distinctive pose, enthroned with a wolf at their side and an iron longsword across their lap. The swords are there, supposedly, to keep the vengeful Stark spirits in their grave, but they might also be a warning to trespassers. The latter meaning is the modern ascribed meaning of a stark lord laying open steel across his lap. Everyone knew what that meant, as Brand says when Rob does it to Tyrion in A Game of Thrones. It's a denial of hospitality, the opposite of invoking guest right. The point is that Rob appears this way to us twice once in A Game of Thrones, as I said, and more impressively in Catlin's first chapter of A Clash of Kings the first time that we see Rob crowned as King in the North. Rob is greeting us exactly the way a King in the North should. So let's take a look. This is the opening of the chapter.
2: Her son's crown was fresh from the forge and it seemed to Catelyn Stark that the weight of it pressed heavy on Rob's head. The ancient crown of the Kings of Winter had been lost three centuries ago, yielded up to Aegon the Conqueror when Torrhen Stark knelt in submission What Aegon had done with it, no man could say. Lord Hoster-Smith had done his work well, and Rob's crown looked much as the other was said to have looked, in the tales told of the Stark Kings of old. An open circlet of hammered bronze, incised with the runes of the First Men, surmounted by nine black iron spikes, wrought in the shape of long swords. Of gold and silver and gemstones, it had none. Bronze and iron were the metals of winter, dark and strong to fight against the cold.
1: This is a big hint that the King of Winter is someone who fights against the cold. As I've pointed out elsewhere, such as in the Tyrion-Targaryen episode, Winterfell is indeed an oasis of heat and warmth in the frozen north, a bulwark of heat against the cold. You could read King of Winter as implying a king who uses the forces of winter, like the original King of the Others or something, Just as you could interpret Winterfell to mean the place from which winter falls, the source of winter, and just as you could interpret Winter is coming as a threat, the King of Winter is coming to kill you, in other words. But you could also interpret King of Winter as the King over Winter, the King who defeated Winter, and that's what is implied here by his having dark and strong metals to fight the cold. You could likewise interpret Winterfell to mean the place where Winter was felled, as in defeated, and winter is coming as a warning to prepare to fight the winter. These two ideas are not even mutually exclusive, as oftentimes a victorious warrior will take on the trappings of the one whom he had just defeated, such as with Ori's Baratheon becoming the new Storm Lord after defeating the Old One. The idea is that by defeating something powerful, you gain its power, and this is really what I think is up with the King of Winter. It ends up as an ice and fire duality, where the King of Winter is a chilly dude who uses various forms of fire to master the forces of winter. Recall Stannis as the blue-eyed king wielding a red sword, or Rob as a blue-eyed king with kissed by fire red hair, and recall Jon dreaming of wielding a burning red sword while being armored in black ice. Ned is introduced to us with a sword called Ice, which is named after the original sword of the King of Winter. And that makes us think of the King of Winter or the Lord of Stark as an icy fellow, but the sword Ice is actually a smoke-dark, nearly black Valyrian steel blade forged in dragon fire with Valyrian magic. Again, it's the Ice and Fire unity idea. It seems odd at first to see a dragon sword in the hands of the Champion of the North, but again, dark metals to fight the cold. In fact, Ned's sword is more properly called Black Ice, since it's a nearly black sword named Ice. And this causes us to wonder if Jon's black ice armor is actually a clue about him needing some Valyrian steel armor if any such thing happens to be lurking around somewhere. If the symbol of black ice refers to Valyrian steel, then I would suggest that obsidian, which the Valyrians called frozen fire, is playing into the black ice symbolism as well. Obsidian actually looks like black ice, and Martin is already telling us that it's frozen. It can be called frozen fire because it is literally cooled magma, just as steel swords are created in a molten state before hardening or freezing in place. Most importantly, Valyrian steel probably kills others, and dragonglass definitely does. If Valyrian steel is black ice that kills others, then dragonglass must surely be black ice as well. At least that's my thinking. Frozen fire is actually the best way to summarize all of this ice and fire mixing with the King of Winter. He has an element of fire, but it's frozen and black, just like cooled and hardened Valyrian steel or dragonglass. Valyrian steel, obsidian, and the King of Winter, all dark and strong and fighting the cold. The scene with Rob continues.
2: When the guards brought in the captive, Rob called for his sword. Olivar Frey offered it up hilt first, and her son drew the blade and laid it bare across his knees. A threat plain for all to see. Your Grace, here is the man you asked for, announced Sir Robin Rygar, captain of the Tully Household Guard. Kneel before the king, Lannister, Theon Greyjoy shouted. Sir Robin forced the prisoner to his knees.
1: It's a threat plain to see, and it's the exact pose of a King of Winter. Next, pay attention to his sword.
2: Rise, Sir Cleos. Her son's voice was not as icy as his father's would have been, but he did not sound a boy of fifteen, either. War had made a man of him before his time. Morning light glimmered faintly against the edge of the steel across his knees.
1: Oh my! It's a sword gleaming with morning light, and in the hands of the King of Winter. Some of you may be familiar with the theory that Dawn is actually the original ice of House Stark, which I personally think might be the case. And even if not, we can see a general symbolic overlap between the King of Winter and the Last Hero and using a sword to bring the morning. We have yet to figure out how House Dane and House Stark both figure into the Last Hero's story in terms of bloodlines, though we may not ever be able to beyond a general association. Nevertheless, the sword shining with morning light is a pretty good clue about the King of Winter having something to do with the Last Hero and ending the Long Night. Unless we think that's simply a poetic description and not a double meaning, Here is Tyrion describing his memory of Rob meeting him with steel across his lap from the throne of the Kings of Winter.
2: He remembered Rob Stark as he had last seen him, in his father's high seat in the great hall of Winterfell, a sword naked and shining in his hands. He remembered how the direwolves had come at him out of the shadows, and suddenly he could see them again, snarling and snapping, teeth bared in his face.
1: This time, the sword is naked and shining. That's pretty powerful imagery, and it starts to become hard to explain as a coincidence. Rob's hellhounds emerge from the shadows in the scene, and the same thing happens in the scene with Rob holding court at Riverrun. Yet it was not
2: the sword that made Sir Cleos Frey anxious. It was the beast. Grey Wind, her son had named him. A direwolf large as any elk hound. Lean and smoke dark with eyes like molten gold. When the beast padded forward and sniffed at the captive knight, every man in that hall could smell the scent of fear. Sir so Cleos had been taken during the battle in the Whispering Wood, where Grey Wind had ripped out the throats of half a dozen men.
1: Here's the thing about Cleos being afraid of the beast and not the sword. The beast is the sword, in a manner of speaking. Grey Wind is described as smoke-dark, and of course, Grey Wind is a good way to describe billowing clouds of smoke, but what is important is that smoke-dark is also the description of Valyrian steel. The very first one, in fact, when we see Ned's ice, it's called Spell Forged and Dark as Smoke in A Game of Thrones. When Jon Snow examines Longclaw with Sam in A Feast for Crows, it's more of the same, as Longclaw is described as smoke-dark metal. Longclaw is, of course, ornamented with a pale stone pommel in the likeness of Ghost's head, again drawing an analogy between the Valyrian steel sword and the direwolf of the man who wields it. In addition to being the color of Valyrian steel, Grey Wind's eyes are molten gold, adding to the general fiery symbolism present here and to the idea of a fiery hellhound, and the general notion of molten metal adds to the picture of Grey Wind as a sword. To punctuate this, one of the first things Rob demands of Cleos and the Lannisters after setting Grey Wind loose is that they return his father's sword, Black Ice. As for that sword, well, Rob wasn't getting it back, as it was instead split in two and made into a pair of Lannister swords. Funny thing, though, when Joffrey's given one of those swords at his wedding, Widow's well, we read that Red and black ripples in the steel shimmered in the morning light just like Rob's sword did when he was playing the role of King of Winter, and that's no accident. Rob's sword at Riverrun represented the sword of the King of Winter, and Widow's whale used to be the actual sword of the Starks, Black Ice. There is only one other time in the entire series that a sword glimmers or shimmers with morning light. Believe me, I looked. And unsurprisingly, the culprit is Longclaw, where Lord Commander John Snow is, watching the play of the morning light across the ripples, of its blade in A Dance with Dragons as he contemplates executing Janos Slint. Just to make things abundantly clear, it happens again at the end of that same John chapter when he actually executes Janos. Pale morning sunlight ran up and down his blade as he raises it on high to strike the killing blow. This is yet another confirmation that John is fated to wield a sword which brings the morning, which, strange as this sounds, may or may not be dawn. Two of the three swords that shine with morning light that we've just looked at are made of dark Valyrian steel, after all. That's a debate we can't really get caught up in right now, shout out to Slyren, and I really could see it going either way, but the point here is the very clear association between the King of Winter and a sword which shines with morning light. One last note on that Joffrey scene with Widow's Wail. There's last hero math to be found. When he's looking for a name for the sword he calls out for suggestions and it says that joffrey dismissed a dozen before he heard one he liked which makes widow's whale the 13th member added to a group of 12 and thus symbolic of the last hero that fits with my notion of the last hero or king of winter as a sort of frozen fire a mix of ice and fire which can fight the cold and it further associates valyrian steel with the last hero like his sword Joffrey, too, gets the last hero math in Jamie's Weirwood Stump Dream. That was the one where Jamie found himself in the bowels of Casterly Rock, wielding a silvery-blue flaming sword with Brienne, and being confronted by various ghosts and specters. He sees his son Joffrey, and behind him, a dozen more dark shapes with golden hair. Again, it's one thing leading a group of twelve, and dark shapes makes them sound like ghosts or dead things. Jamie himself, Joff's true father, was in turn prodded down the hallways of Casterly Rock in this dream by a dozen tall dark figures in cowled robes that hid their faces, who all hold spears, which puts Jamie in the role of last hero. I would say that this emphasizes the idea of the last hero-Azor-High relationship as some sort of cycle or father-son type of thing. Those twelve hooded dream figures are pretty creepy, I have to say, and they remind me a bit of Cold Hands, whose face is also hidden by his cowl when Sam meets him. Now, it must be said, Joffrey makes for a shitty last hero, but I think the thing to focus on is his symbolism. Although Joff isn't really Robert's son, he wears a stag crown and claims Baratheon descent, making him a type of solar horned lord. On the day he is given the former sword of the Starks, gleaming with morning light, he dies. Which makes perfect sense if you subscribe to my awesome theory about the last hero becoming an undead skin changer and then going out to fight the others. Joff dies of strangulation too, like so many other sacrificed figures with neck or throat wounds, such as John, Renly, Baric, Rob, beheading counts as a throat wound, I'd say, and probably cold hands. Even poor old Maester Cresson is wearing Patchface's mockery of an antlered helm when he dies by the strangler, the same poison used on Joffrey. Harkening back to the last episode when we discussed the pattern of green horned folk and red horned folk killing each other. It's worth noting that Joffrey's death fits the pattern. The person whom everyone thinks killed Joff is Tyrion, with his possible secret Targaryen lineage and copious demon and gargoyle imagery. You might recall the armorer in King's Landing offering to make Tyrion a ferocious demon helmet, complete with horns, for example. Joffrey was actually killed by Lady Olenna, or perhaps you might say House Tyrell as a whole, as it's likely other members of House Tyrell were in on the plot. And of course, the Tyrells are the current occupants of Highgarden, the place associated with Garth and his Gardener Kings. The Supper After the Last Supper This section brought to you by Dire Liz, the Alpha Patron, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Aquarius the Water Bearer a descendant of Garth the Green, by way of Gilbert of the Vines, founder of House Redwine. Let's actually talk about Rob's death for a moment, and get these stupid Lannisters out of our King of Winter section. Rob died tragically at the Red Wedding, of course, and naturally, his death fits that same pattern of horn gods killing each other. First of all, he was remotely killed by Mel and Stannis's burning of the leeches, if you believe them anyways, meaning that in a certain sense, he was killed by Stannis, a burning, stag, half-corpse, blah, 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 blah. You know the drill. The actual killing blow came from Roose Bolton, who, as we all know, is an immortal skin-changing body snatcher. Say what now? You haven't heard of the Bolton theory that says the spirit inhabiting the body of Roose Bolton is actually an 8,000-year-old skin changer who simply body snatches a new body when the current one gets old? Oh, well, That's a great theory. Do yourself a favor and Google that one when you're done with this. It sounds crazy, But there's just enough evidence to sort of drive you mad thinking about it. But whether or not it's true, it is easy to see that the Boltons, who flay their enemies and are said to wear their skins, including the skins of a few Starks, can at the very least symbolize some sort of vampire skin-changer people. Additionally, Ramsay Snow has a weird kind of matching symbolism to Jon Snow. The other people responsible for killing Rob would be the Freys, and I'm actually not sure that they fit the pattern at all, as they have no horns or skin-changing symbolism. We'll just have to let Martin off the hook for that one, what can I say? Now Rob was not burned, as the wicker man King of Winter is, however, in the same sense that he was killed by Stannis, you could also say that he was killed by fire magic. When news of his death and the grisly stunt with the wolf head reaches Stannis, Melisandre and their supporters, Axel Florent pipes in with, It was the Lord's Wrath who slew him, suggesting Rob's death by fire in a symbolic sense. Just as beheading surely counts as a neck or throat wound, I'd have to say that being killed by a fire god counts for being burned. The cool thing about dead Rob is that he is loaded with symbolism. Rob appears to us twice in vision form as a living corpse, once in Danny's House of the Undying vision, and once in a nightmare of Theon Greyjoys while he's occupying Winterfell. And both times, Rob appears as part of a feast of the dead. In the House of the Undying, Danny sees Rob as a dead man with the head of a wolf, sitting on a throne and presiding over a feast attended only by corpses, like some sort of grisly, beyond-the-grave version of the Last Supper of Jesus and the Twelve Disciples. And yes, that's last hieromath for Jesus, which at this point should not surprise you. In another podcast, I will explain how all of this relates to the Zodiac, which is really the source of all of these Twelves. The Thirteenth in that case is usually the Morning Star, Venus, and accordingly, Jesus is a Morning star deity, which we covered in our Lucifer Means Lightbringer episode. In any case, this vision of dead, wolf-headed Rob is a fairly clear foreshadowing of the barbaric stunt that the phrase pull by mounting the head of Grey Wind on Rob's headless corpse after the Red Wedding. But you know what else it might be foreshadowing? Undead John, the King of Winter, as a wolf-man, perhaps in the sense that we proposed in the last episode, where John's spirit merges with ghosts, and the merged wolf-man spirit is what is returned to John's body. At the very least, this vision of dead wolf-headed Rob suggests an undead skin changer, a part wolf, part man who is a walking corpse. Rob also wears the black iron crown of the King of Winter in this vision, probably just to make sure that we know who we're talking about here. One other note on that crown of the King of Winter, which is nine iron long swords on a bronze circlet, it sounds a lot like the wartime crown of the Gardener Kings even more than the rusted crown of the barrow kings does. The crown of the gardener kings was wrought in the shape of bronze and later iron thorns, and there is ample symbolism comparing swords and thorns in the series, so the two crowns really are a good match. You'll also note that the gardener's crown of thorns is very suggestive of the mocking crown of thorns that Jesus was made to wear at his crucifixion. The other vision of Rob as a corpse king of winter comes to Theon in A Nightmare, and like Danny's vision of Corpse Rob Stark, it too comes in a clash of kings before Rob's actual death, and is thus a foreshadowing of his death. Theon's dream starts with a memory of the feast thrown for Robert when he came to Winterfell, tying this dream to that chapter with Robert in the crypts, telegraphing his own death. But then the music and wine turns sour, and Theon sees that he is dining with the dead, and that links this scene to Danny's vision of Corpse Rob at a feast of the dead. Dead Wolfman Rob was at the head of the table in Danny's vision, but here in Theon's vision, it's Dead King Robert at the head of the table, emphasizing the link between the Horn God, Robert, and the King of Winter, Rob. Rob is, of course, named after Robert, which now earns a little chuckle from you and me. Here is the corpse feast from Theon's dream version of Winterfell.
2: King Robert sat with his guts spilling out on the table from the great gash in his belly, and Lord Eddard was headless beside him. Corpses lined the benches below. Gray-brown flesh sloughing off their bones as they raised their cups to toast. Worms crawling in and out of the holes that were their eyes. He knew them, every one.
1: It then goes on to list all the people Theon had a hand in killing, plus a few he didn't, such as Leanna and Brandon Stark, Ned's siblings. Which reminds me, the grisly murder of Rickard and Brandon Stark, well... Rickard is burnt like a true King of Winter, and Brandon is strangled like all the other throat-wound sacrificial victims. But continuing with Theon's nightmare of the corpse feast...
2: Along the walls, figures half-seen, move through the shadows, pale shades with long, grim faces. The sight of them sent fear shivering through Theon, sharp as a knife. And then the tall doors opened with a crash, and a freezing gale blew down the hall. And Rob came walking out of the night. Grey wind stalked beside, eyes burning. And man and wolf alike bled from half a hundred savage wounds.
1: This terrifying vision of a corpse king of winter again unites fire and ice. The cold winds swirl about Rob, but his wolf, Grey Wind, has eyes which are burning like a true hellhound. We hear that half the hells are frozen in Westerosi folklore, So perhaps the King of Winter simply has all the powers of hell behind him, both ice and fire. And boy does he look pissed. Great Caesar's ghost! That's what you get for having a corpse feast without inviting the King of Winter. So, why the corpse feast associated with the King of Winter? Well, two reasons, I believe. The first would be to show an inversion of the bounty and vitality of the fertility god, as with everything else about the King of Winter and the Barrow King. That seems straightforward enough. The second would be to specifically invoke the Last Supper, which was the final meal Jesus had with his twelve disciples before he was betrayed by one of them, arrested, tried, and crucified, and then, famously, resurrected. The parallels between Jesus and our image of the last hero are readily apparent, so casting the corpse King of Winter as Jesus is essentially a clue about the King of Winter having something to do with the last hero and ending the long night. As I mentioned, Jesus is a Morning Star figure, and like various Corn King figures, Morning Star deities are killed and resurrected, just not in conjunction with the cycle of the seasons. John and the Last Hero are thoroughly draped in Morning Star symbolism, just as they are with Corn King symbolism. So, what we're seeing here with Dead Rob in The Last Supper for the Dead is the King of Winter joining that club. The King of Winter already has resurrected Green Man symbolism, and now he has Morning Star symbolism to go along with it. We actually saw Morningstar symbolism with the King of Winter already, with all that shining swords glimmering with morning light business. Once again, all of this is basically telling us that this figure of the undead King of Winter is a weird kind of savior figure, and that's more or less the premise of this series about skin changer zombies. We're almost done with Rob, but this Theon chapter with the corpse feast does end with a nice clue about Starks and horn people, which I simply cannot pass up.
2: On their iron spikes atop the gatehouse, the heads waited. Theon gazed at them silently, while the wind tugged on his cloak with small ghostly hands. The miller's boys had been of an age with Bran and Rickon, alike in size and colouring, and once Reek had flayed the skin from their faces and dipped their heads in tar, it was easy to see familiar features in those misshapen lumps of rotting flesh. People were such fools. If we'd said they were rams' heads, they would have seen horns.
1: These heads are not really Starks, but they are representing Starks, and we're given three pieces of information about them, all of which point in the same direction. The heads have been skinned, suggesting skin-changing, and of course Bran and presumably Ricken are skin-changers anyway. The heads are actually the children of a miller, Think of milling as in milling corn, creating a corn king association with dead Bran and ricken, And, of course, that final line about them having horns, like a horned lord. Rob himself actually gets a really cool horned reference, albeit in a less direct fashion. In A Game of Thrones, as he and his army await to cross the twins, he agrees to a marriage pact with an unspecified fray girl in order to cross. And as soon as he says, I consent, we have this paragraph. They crossed at Evenfall as a
2: horned moon floated upon the river. The double column wound its way through the gate of the eastern twin like a great steel snake, slithering across the courtyard into the keep and over the bridge to issue forth once more from the second cable on the west bank. Catelyn rode at the head of the serpent with her son and her uncle Brynden and Sir Stevron Frey.
1: Try to picture this scene from the river. The reflected image of the horned crescent moon appears to float on the surface of the river, and right at this moment, a steel snake of an army slithers across the river. The image we get here is of a horned serpent, which of course is another way of saying dragon. The more important thing here though is the foreshadowing. The horned moon connotes sacrifice, being compared to sickles and curved knives, especially in Bran's last chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where the moon is four times described as a crescent, thin and sharp as the blade of a knife. And don't forget, that's the chapter that ends with a person being sacrificed in front of the heart tree with a sickle-shaped blade. Not only do the crescent moon and the horned moon resemble the curved blades often used in ritual sacrifice, they also resemble the horned animals who are sacrificed, like stags, bulls, goats, and rams. You'll notice the classic horned god figure is the embodiment of all this having horns and also being ritually sacrificed. And although he's a solar figure himself, he is often pictured at night with a crescent moon floating above his head, in between the curve of his antlers. So now that we're all up to speed on the sacrificial aspect of the horned moon symbolism, we can see that this scene is indeed an omen, a bit of foreshadowing. It's not a good sign that the horned moon appears on the river as Rob's army crosses the river. As we all know, Rob and his army will indeed be slaughtered when they return here to the Twins for the Red Wedding. There's other death foreshadowing in this scene, too. As they pass through the castles on either end of the bridge, the glittering eyes of Walder Frey and his Freyfolk peer down at the Starks through the murder holes. I am proposing that the Dead King of Winter is a personification of the winter and death phase of the Horned God resurrection cycle, so it's really nice to see the Horned Moon being used to foreshadow Rob's death. I mean, it's not nice-nice, but it fits the symbolism we find elsewhere, which is always a good thing. Whispers in the Wood This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter Sir Imriel of Heavenly House Orion, Earthly Avatar of the Sword of the Morning, and Spinner of the Great Wheel. So far, Rob Stark has given us a ton of information about the King of Winter, tying him to the last hero, to the sword that brings the morning, the horn god ideas, and to being a zombie wolfman skin changer. To this, I would like to add the suggestion of the King of Winter as a green seer, and that comes at the scene of Rob's greatest victory, the Battle of the Whispering Wood. That chapter opens with the line The woods were full of whispers, and the very idea of a whispering wood is simply a clever way of referencing green Seers and the weirwoods, because whispering is the communication of the weirwood, as we have seen many, many times. The wood that is full of whispers is the weirwood net, and that is precisely where we find the King of Winter fighting a battle. Hmm, this is starting to sound like The Matrix or Lawnmower Man or something. The first thing that stands out is that the whispering wood seems to be attacking along with Rob as if they are one. As the battle begins, Rob's soldiers conceal their weapons under a thick carpet of dead leaves which covers the ground, and his bowmen let loose while hidden in the trees. The exact line as they spring their trap was, The whispering wood let out its breath all at once, as the bowmen Rob had hidden in the branches of the trees let fly their arrows. In other words, the exhalation of the whispering wood is the storm of arrows. We saw the same thing when the mountain clans dressed up as trees and shrubs and attacked the ironborn at Deepwood Mott, under the command of Stannis, who is of course an undead, horned god asora high figure. When Asha Greyjoy realizes why it is that the trees seem to be creeping closer, she remarks, Oh ho, these mountain goats have cloaked themselves in pine boughs. Goats, of course, are a prime horned animal often chosen for sacrifice, so the implication here is of Stannis' army of tree people as horned folk. That's pretty explicit people that are like horned animals, and walking trees, and again, fighting for Azor High reborn as a corpse-like burning stagman. And remember Renly's Knights of Summer? Consider this passage as Catelyn approaches the tent right before Renly's murder.
0: The long ranks of man and horse were armored in darkness, as black as if the smith had hammered night itself into steel. There were banners to her right, banners to her left, and rank on rank of banners before her. But in the pre-dawn gloom, neither colors nor sigils could be discerned. A gray army, Catelyn thought, gray men on gray horses beneath gray banners. As they sat their horses waiting, Renly's shadow knights pointed their lances upward, so she rode through a forest of tall, naked trees, bereft of leaves and life.
1: Renly is a sacrificed green horned man, and his army is a shadow army of dead trees. I actually forgot to mention this last time, but right after Renly dies, his green tent catches on fire, giving us the image of a burning green horned god, just as resurrected Renly does at the Battle of the Blackwater. Taken with Stannis' army of tree-wearing northmen and Rob's army attacking from inside the Whispering Wood, we can see that the dead horned god is supposed to lead an army of tree people in some fashion, quite possibly dead tree people. Death symbolism abounds at the Whispering Wood as well. We mentioned that the spears and swords are concealed under a thick carpet of dead leaves, and as Rob marshaled his forces to deploy for this battle, we read that,
0: It was dark among the trees where the moon did not reach. When Rob turned his head to look at her, she could only see black inside his visor.
1: That's pretty creepy, I have to say. And it's a good way to reinforce this idea of the King of Winter as a dead person, even while Rob is still alive. As the horns sound the attack of the Northmen, gray winds howling fills the Whispering Wood, and Catelyn thinks to herself, "So this is what death sounds like." Rob is like a grim reaper with a hellhound tolling the sound of doom, more or less. In other words, to the extent that the King of Winter, the Lord of the Whispering Wood, is a green seer. He's one associated pretty strongly with death. I would explain this by suggesting that he is simply a resurrected greenseer or skin changer. The idea of the King of Winter as a greenseer is also suggested in Bran's vision of Ned, which he sees through the eyes of the Winterfell heart tree while in Bloodraven's cave hopped up on weirwood paste.
2: Lord Eddard Stark sat upon a rock beside the deep black pool in the godswood the pale roots of the heart tree twisting around him like an old man's gnarled arms. The great sword ice lay across Lord Eddard's lap, and he was cleaning the blade with an oilcloth. Winterfell, Bran whispered. His father looked up. Who's there? he asked, turning. And Bran, frightened, pulled away. His father and the black pool and the godswood faded and were gone. And he was back in the cabin, the pale, thick roots of his weirwood throne, cradling his limbs as a mother does a child. A torch flared to life before him.
1: Notice the parallel here. Bran's weirwood throne cradles him like a mother does a child, while the weirwood at Winterfell cradles Ned with an old man's arms. This places Ned in the role of a greenseer, sitting in a weirwood throne like Bran and I believe that this is suggestive of the Latent green Seer skin changer ability in the Stark Bloodline. It also speaks of the King of Winter as an archetype, one who has weirwood branches wrapped around him. When Bran wakes, he tells Bloodraven that Ned could hear him, and Bloodraven responds that he heard a whisper on the wind, rustling amongst the leaves. It's the whispering wood motif again, a whispering to one descendant of the King of Winter from another descendant of the King of Winter. There's also a nice dead tree weirwood metaphor in a brand chapter of A Game of Thrones. It may simply be poetic description, but Winterfell is described as a gray stone labyrinth, which had grown over the centuries like some monstrous stone tree. Of course, a stone tree is exactly what weirwoods become if they are killed. After a few centuries, they essentially petrify in place and turn to stone. The best example of this is with Naga's ribs, which are almost certainly petrified weirwood, perhaps the ribbing of an overturned ship's hull made from weirwood, but which are taken as the ribcage of a dead sea dragon monster by the Ironborn. I wrote about that extensively in my Grey King and the Sea Dragon episode, if you're curious, but the point here about Winterfell is simple. A dead weirwood tree is synonymous with a dead greenseer, because a greenseer becomes one with his weirwood tree. Winterfell being symbolized as a dead stone weirwood fits perfectly with the idea of a dead greenseer king of winter, a personification of the death phase of the Corn King's cycle. Again, it may be nothing, but calling the stone tree of Winterfell a labyrinth may be a nod to the myth of the Minotaur, a bull-man monster who lived inside the labyrinth. That's a totally different line of horned symbolism from the Corn King ideas, but I thought I would mention it. Is Martin trying to suggest a monstrous, horned, half-human, half-animal being inside of Winterfell, or inside its trees, as in inside the weirwood net? Does this have something to do with the seemingly magical truism that there must always be a Stark in Winterfell? Here I will throw out one of my favorite little speculative predictions. There could be a weirwood throne underneath Winterfell's heart tree, perhaps accessible through the crypts. If Bran ever leaves Bloodraven's cave, this would be the logical place for him to end up, the true ghost in Winterfell. Perhaps Jon might see this throne if he can ever carry out his dream of walking through the crypts to its full extent. This will no doubt allow the Stark sitting in this throne to wake all the Stark dead in the crypts in the lichyards Yards and form an army of the dead to fight the others. It may be tinfoil, but there is ample foreshadowing of the spirits of the Kings of Winter rising somehow, including one of Jon's dreams where they are literally walking out of their tombs. I would draw your attention back to Ned's line in A Game of Thrones, which is taken as a foreshadowing of Jon Snow as a king. Robert Baratheon says, I've never seen such a vast emptiness. Where are all your people? And Ned says they are likely too shy to come out and that kings are a rare sight in the north, to which Robert famously responds, More likely they were hiding under the snow. Snow, Ned! Which is taken as a double meaning to refer to the kings being under the snow, as in Jon Snow. Robert's intended meaning, however, is that Ned's people are hiding under the snow, which suggests Ned's people as whites who lie under the snow until nightfall. The kings of winter actually did bury their quote faithful servants in a lichyard in the shadow of the first keep as we learn in a game of thrones so if the undead king of winter john snow needs an army of the undead for some reason i mean it's right there is all i'm saying we have dead winter kings and faithful servants both ready to go now even if none of that ever happens and the corpses stay in their graves and crypts which is probably more likely the repeated emphasis on the dead of Winterfell in general, and the Crips in particular, do effectively convey the idea of the Kings of Winter as the Lord of Death. Consider our very first glimpse of Ned as an executioner, passing the sentence and swinging the sword, and teaching his children to do the same. It must be said that just because the King of Winter is a Death figure and a Lord of the Dead does not make him a villain by any means. Osiris and Hades are two well-known Lord of the Dead figures. And they definitely would not be called villains. Mythology is full of resurrected heroes, even beyond the Corn King traditions, as we saw in our Lucifer Means Lightbringer episode, where we examined the phenomena of morning star deities, who are also killed and resurrected to heroic effect. And remember, we are actually looking for a zombie-last hero to save us from the zombie apocalypse. I think that man will be Ghost John, the fiery, undead wolf man, corpse king and Corn King. Azor High reborn as the King of Winter, the light that brings the dawn. As they say, titles, titles. But he's going to need some help. He can't do it on his own, can he? And neither did the Last Hero or Azor High win their war alone, so it's time to talk about the Night's Watch and the Last Hero's Twelve Companions. Which we'll do next time. I hope you enjoyed that unpacking of the Barrow King and the King of Winter mythology. And I'm actually saving some of the very best King of Winter material for the third head of this green zombie dragon, so we aren't through with that yet. At the end of it all, I think it makes sense from a narrative point of view to use the mythologies of the various houses in the north to tell us about the northern part of the War for the Dawn business, as seems to be the case. And what we've seen so far is a story about dead green men who don't stay dead. Ba bonus round! Remember how I listed five people who all show us Burning Stag, Zombie, Azora High symbolism? It was Barak, Stannis, Renly, Jon Snow, Blood Raven, and now we see that Rob fits that pattern too. And there's one more major character who fits all that symbolism Burning Man, King of Winter, Horned Lord, Azora High, Resurrection, Zombie symbolism. I didn't mention him because I'd really have to do a whole essay, but I'm just throwing it out as a trivia. See if you can guess who it is. We'll see you again soon for part three. Until then, rest in peace.